Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. Uh, my name is Tim, and we're going to jump into that passage in just a moment. Uh, before we do, I just want you to imagine, or perhaps reimagine, a classic boy meets girl movie, or at least that's the way it starts. So the movie begins with a beautiful sunny day. Uh, you have the guy and the girl, they're going for a jog in a park. They sort of bump into one another and say, oh, hello, nice to meet you. Sparks fly, they arrange a date, they start dating, they fall in love. Next scene is the proposal. It's a romantic candlelit dinner for two. Uh, someone is in the background playing the violin and in the, in the foreground, the guy's there on one knee proposing, she says yes. Uh, then we cut to the wedding. The music is upbeat. Uh, they're standing at the altar, surrounded by family and friends. And then the scene closes as they are in one of those old-fashioned cars, driving off into the sunset, and it says, just married. Then the screen goes blank. And after a few seconds, the words come up on the screen three years later. And this time, it's an overcast day. There's a sense of foreboding in the music. Only the guy is in the picture, but it's clear from his face that everything is not okay. And then he stands at his front door. The camera is over his shoulder, and it follows him as he opens the door, walks through the house to the bedroom where he finds his wife in bed with another man. It's a tragically familiar story, isn't it? Not just in the movies, unfortunately. Whenever it happens, whether it's the guy, whether it's the girl, we always find ourselves asking, what went wrong? How did something that began with such beauty and faithfulness end up in such ugly betrayal? What went wrong? The reason I begin this way is because in some ways that is the question that the introduction to the book of Judges is seeking to answer for us. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, really, uh, God describes himself as a husband and his people as a wife. And so actually in the very previous chapter, so the book of Joshua finishes in chapter 24, in that chapter, God's people have effectively renewed their marriage vows to God. And this is what we read uh, at the very end of the previous book. It says, far be it from us, say the people, to forsake the Lord, to serve other gods, the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Again, they're renewing their marriage vows. They're saying God has been so good to us. He's even started to drive out the nations from before us. He's our God. We're going to remain faithful to him. And yet within really one chapter of the Bible, uh, one generation, the Israelites are, in the words of Joshua sorry, Judges 2 verse 17, prostituting themselves to other gods and worshipping idols. What happened? What happened? Again, uh, that is really the question that the introduction to the book of Judges is seeking to answer. Now, here's the thing. It's important to say that today's passage is not, not primarily a history lesson, by which I mean the purpose of studying this is not so that we now become more educated about the state of the Israelites in probably what was around 1200 BC. It's not just so we can know more about the past. Uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 11, he says, those things happened to them, but they were written down for us as a warning for us upon whom the culmination of the ages have come. And therefore, what we're going to see today is ultimately a warning 
about the importance of remaining faithful to the Lord, and in particular, the importance of being vigilant about cutting sin and temptation out of our life. Uh, The lesson of the introduction in many ways is complacently leads to compromise. Um, Accommodation to sin leads to adultery with sin. Um, Or in the, if I can paraphrase a a Puritan, uh, John Owen, uh, unless we be killing sin, sin will be killing us. So where are we going? Well, uh, I want to begin with just a, a brief introduction to the book, or more, more accurately, an overview of the book, and then we're going to jump into those two themes in a little more detail. So um, bringing up this overview of the book, the, over, the book exists in three parts. You have the introduction, the bulk of the book, obviously, the body between chapter 3 to seven, uh, 16, and then you have the appendix for the last four chapters of the book. The body of the book introduces us to 12 heroes. Uh, six of them are kind of more major heroes. That, you know, you get more information on them. Six of them are minor heroes, but the Bible calls them judges. Now, when you hear the word judge, don't think of, you know, the person in the gown, the wig and the gavel. Um, they did have kind of an ongoing judicial role in the leadership of the people, but really the emphasis of the book is on the role that each of these people had in delivering Israel. So the Holy Spirit would come on these judges, God would empower them to deliver the people from their enemies, and then they would lead the people for a season. It's actually a bit of a cycle that gets repeated time and time again throughout the book, or the body really. And so just working through, you kind of have the people rebelling against God, God gets angry at the people, and so they're oppressed by their enemies as a result in God's judgment. Then the people cry out, they repent, they say, we're sorry. Uh, God saves them through his chosen judge. Then they have a season of peace, which is lovely while it lasts. But then the judge dies, and then the cycle begins again, and it just keeps going. The thing is that there is actually, and you notice this, and we're even told it explicitly in chapter 2, there is a downward spiral that you can notice throughout the book. And so chapter 2, verse 19 tells us, but when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. All of which brings us to the appendix, right? By the time you get to the appendix, uh, if you can... Help us out here, guys. I'll I'll allow you to bring up the appendix for us. By the time you get to the appendix of the book, things are really bad. And so this is where you'll probably know the phrase, but it actually only ever appears in the appendix. It comes four times. It says, everybody did in those days, sorry, Israel, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, All of which... uh, the previous one, thanks, all of which is really preparing you for the message of 1 and 2 Samuel, which is the arrival of God's king. But now, I'm happy with this slide, that'll do. Let's come to the introduction. We, got, we were getting there. Because this is what we're looking at today. So the introduction to the book kind of spans chapter 1 through to the start of chapter 3. It exists in two parts, and I'm suggesting that you could really summarize each part as about spiritual accommodation and spiritual adultery. So spiritual accommodation, it helps give us the context of the book. It's answering the question, how is it that Israel could now find themselves in the promised land 
And yet they're still surrounded by all the, like, they're their enemies. How did that happen? Well, it's because they accommodated. The second part, part two, spiritual adultery, it's, it's kind of looking forward at the book and overviewing the book and saying, how is it that Israel now in the promised land keep getting attacked by their enemies despite the obvious superiority of their God? Well, the answer is because they keep committing spiritual adultery and prostituting themselves to other gods. So, uh, that is an overview of the book. As I said, uh, let's jump in. We'll take a look at the introduction. If you could take me through to the next slide, guys, that would be wonderful. There you go, lovely. All right, so we'll jump in. Spiritual accommodation. Let's start verse 1. It says, after the death of Joshua. It does keep going, but we'll pause there. Who was Joshua? Well, Joshua was the successor to Moses. And Moses, you are probably aware, led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And then he brought them to the edge of the promised land, but he never actually made his way in. Instead, he passed the baton on to Joshua, this guy. And it was Joshua who took over, led the people as they entered Canaan and took possession of their inheritance. The thing is, by the end of Joshua's life it's pretty clear that there's still a fair bit of work to do. And so, for example, at the end of his life, this is from the last chapter of Joshua, Joshua stands up right before his death and gives this speech. He says, I have allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain, the nations I conquered, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea in the west. The Lord your God himself will push, out for your, push them out for your sake. He will drive them out before you, and you will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Right, so there's the promise. God will do the work. All you guys need to do is just show up. Now, I suspect uh, that that whole dynamic, the dynamic of conquest, of God being involved in that, will raise a bunch of questions for us. They're fair questions. But I'm going to put them on pause just for a moment because I want to come back to it a little later. Let's just keep going with the story. Joshua is dead. Thankfully, the Israelites know who their true leader is. And so verse 1 continues. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. Now, that's a really positive first start. Why? Well, they're asking the Lord for guidance. Uh, God even then basically tells them, I'm going to give you success. And so as we read, we'll read three examples now. The first half of chapter 1 begins really good. That seems to be what happens. So for example, verse 4, when Judah, this is kind of the southern tribe, attacked, the, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands. And they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. Next one, verse 8. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. One more. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath, and they totally destroyed the city. Again, so far so good. Things really do seem to be getting off to a good start. It's interesting though, because read now with me verse 19. Verse 19 is the first clue you get in chapter 1 that maybe things aren't quite as good as they seem. Verse 19, the Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but 
they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. Now that's weird. Since when have iron chariots ever posed a problem for God? Actually, to make the issue more clear, when you get to chapter 4 and you meet Deborah, the army of God destroys 900 iron chariots. And so clearly God doesn't have a problem with iron chariots. But we'll just leave that question unanswered, kind of unresolved. Let's keep going. So we've done Judah. Let's go now to kind of the northern tribes. This is the second half of chapter 1. And while things do start mostly positive, very quickly it goes downhill again. Again, three examples. Verse 27. But Manasseh, that's a tribe, did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Iblim or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. Verse 29. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Giza. But the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Verse 33, Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath, but the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. Not exactly the story of conquest you're expecting when the chapter begins, is it? And somewhat tellingly, verse 36, the end of the chapter, it ends not with the new boundaries of Israel, but kind of the remaining boundaries of the Amorites who continue to live among them. So what's the deal? Didn't God promise, I'm with you, I'm going to go ahead of you, I'll drive them out? What happened? Well, uh, we get the answer to that in the start of chapter 2. So we'll keep reading. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you've disobeyed me. Why have you done this? On multiple occasions, in multiple different places. You see it in Exodus, you see it in Deuteronomy, you see it in Joshua. God tells the people, when I give you the land, you have to drive them out. Don't cozy up with them, don't make a covenant with them, don't make peace, don't just think, yeah, we can exist side by side. Whatever you do, do not marry them, you have to drive them out. Why? Because accommodation will lead to adultery. Verse 3, he keeps going. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares for you. God tells the people, I know your hearts. I know that if they remain, you will give in to compromise, and it won't be long before you're prostituting yourselves to others. So drive them out. So, with that in mind, let's come back to those chariots. Remember the chariots that they couldn't drive out. Is it the case that Judah couldn't drive out? Or is it that they wouldn't drive them out? The text doesn't say, but the context makes it clear that God's got no problems with iron chariots. The issue seems to be with those from Judah. Or think about those from Manasseh. We're told they failed. Why? 
Because the Canaanites were determined to live in the land. In other ways, it does seem to come down to a question of willpower. Frankly, the Canaanites were more determined to live in the land than the Israelites were to completely obey everything that God had said. And therefore, it does seem that the failure of the Israelites, when it all boils down to it, was that they basically decided that total obedience, let's settle for half-hearted obedience. Because total obedience, that's just too hard. As if they didn't actually believe what God had said, that he would go ahead of them and fight their battles, as he promised to do. Now, I'm just going to pause for a moment. Because I think it's worth ask, off the back of that, asking ourselves, do we ever take a similar approach to what we might call the indwelling, the remaining sin in our lives. You know, again, John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And yet, how often do we kind of end up saying, yeah, okay, but it's just too hard. Maybe you think, it's too hard to forgive. It's unrealistic to forgive. Do you know what they've done to me? And so we let the bitterness remain in our heart rather than driving it out in the power of the Spirit. Or we say it's too hard to be sexually pure. And so we fail to drive out the lustful thoughts in our minds. Or we let that porn habit just go unchecked, kind of assuming, maybe hoping, that it will, it's not that big of an issue. Or we think it's too hard to tell the truth. If they knew, it would destroy them. It's actually more kind not to tell the truth. And so we, we kind of make a peace with the lie. Almost make a covenant with the lie and just hope it doesn't come back to bite us. Grace City, one of the warnings of this chapter is that there is no place for accommodating. No place for making a covenant with, coming to terms with, making peace with the remaining sin in our lives. No. God calls sin for what it is. He wants us to repent we won't read it, but that is what the, uh, the Israelites do in verses 4 and 5. And then in the power of the Spirit to put it to death, to kill it. A failure to do that is not just half-hearted obedience. There's no such thing. It's disobedience. And as we'll see in a moment, it sets us well on the path to spiritual adultery. So there's chapter 1. Or part 1. Before we move on and look at part two, I want to come back and uh, address that issue of conquest for a moment. Because maybe, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, Tim, I am fine with the concept of killing sin. It's a clever little move. You, I, I see what you've done there. But that's not talking about killing sin. It's talking about killing sinners. That's quite a different thing entirely. So what are we supposed to do with that? In particular, what's to stop someone using a passage of the Bible like this one, to justify them going and killing their enemies. How do you get around that? It's a really important question. Uh, we could do a whole talk on it. We don't have time for it. But, but we, we have to say a few things about it. Uh, let me see if I can at least give us enough to, to resolve some of the tension first. It's important to keep in mind that the conquest of Canaan was part of God's righteous judgment on the sin of the inhabitants of the land. And so 
we can't think of the Canaanites as this peace-loving, God-fearing people that just were minding their own business. Now, it is significant that in chapter 1, the first ruler of the Canaanites that we meet is a guy named Adonai Bezek. He had made a habit of chopping off the thumbs and the big toes of anyone that he didn't like. He's in some ways supposed to be representative of the cruelty of the kind of people that Israel are coming in to dispossess. Also, Genesis 15, uh, God back there tells uh, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land, but not yet. Why? God says, because the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure. And so again, just what is the conquest about? Well, ultimately, it, it was part of God's righteous judgments against the sin of the inhabitants. That's the first thing. Second of all, the fact that the Old Testament nation of Israel were the agents of God's judgment does not imply that they were morally superior to those they dispossessed. It's really important. In some ways, the book of Judges demonstrates that that just isn't true. They too committed pagan idolatry like all the others. And so therefore, the conquest of Canaan is not a case of God using a righteous group to judge an unrighteous group. Rather, it's one of God sovereignly using one unrighteous group to mete out justice on another unrighteous group. Uh, as the perfect judge, God is able to bring justice even while using imperfect agents. Third, under the Old Covenant, so the Old Testament time, the land was supposed to be God's gift to his people so that they could show to the world what it looked like to be a people who worshipped God, who loved God and lived under his blessing. If I can borrow a phrase from Jesus, they were supposed to be a city on a hill. The problem was they failed so badly at that task that they forfeit ultimately their right to the land. They forfeit the gift. And so God in judgment, uses another unrighteous nation in the Babylonians to bring judgment on them and then drive them out into exile. Fourth and finally, the New Testament makes clear that the promised land, it was only ever a shadow. It was only ever a type of the true promised land, the ultimate promised land of the new heavens, the new earth, the new creation. And therefore, what that means is that we're supposed to shift our focus from some piece of real estate in the Middle East, shift it off that, and instead shift our focus to our true inheritance, the new heavens and new earth, and in particular, the one who secured that for us through his covenant obedience. What's more, as followers of Jesus, we actually have to remember that his ethic of love for your enemies rules out any concept of holy war or conquest of others in his name. And so just to use one example, uh, the Crusades from history is a tragic example of where Christians, the church, just got this totally wrong. Again, I know that won't resolve all of the issues, but hopefully it, it at least addresses enough for us to keep moving. Done part one, spiritual accommodation. Let's move on. Part two, spiritual adultery. As we do, it's worth saying one of the slight challenges of the introduction to Judges 
is fitting out, figuring out how the two parts of it fit together. And so, for example, just, just notice the way that the introduction begins. This is to part two. It says, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, now he was dead in the previous one, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who'd seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now, it is, it, it's just setting the scene, but it's worth knowing there's a bit of scholarly debate as to which, if any, of the generations being described for us here were, let me put that differently, which, if any, the generation from or what we read about in part one, are they either of those generations? So was the group from part one that accommodated with sin, like were they the group that sort of outlived Joshua, you know, the elders who outlived him, but sort of part of that generation? Or were they this new generation that only arose after the previous one had been gathered to their ancestors? Well, I, I won't go into all the reasons for this, but I, I think there's genuine problems with both of those. And so I think it's maybe best to understand the group that we read about, or just read about in part one, as sitting kind of between the two generations that are described here. If I can anachronize for a moment, it's a little like Joshua and the elders were the baby boomers, right? The generation from part one, they're the Gen Xs. They're the ones who accommodate to the sin. And the ones who ultimately commit spiritual adultery that are described here are the millennials. Now, if you're a part of Gen Z, if you're a part of Gen Z and you're like, he forgot me, don't worry, it gets worse and worse and worse. So your time is coming. raises an interesting question though, doesn't it? How is it possible that within such a short period of time, Israel could go from having been described as serving the Lord to neither knowing him nor what he'd done? How did that happen? Well, chapter 2 does, for the most part, lay the blame at that final generation, as if it's ultimately just their hardness of heart. But again, given what we saw in part one, you, I don't think we can say that the parents' generation had nothing to do with it. Because remember, they were the ones who accommodated with sin and failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land. If they had actually obeyed God properly, wholeheartedly, then maybe their kids would have stood a better chance at remaining faithful to God. Now, we're going to move on from a moment. But if you have kids in your life, and maybe they're your own, and maybe they're your godchildren, maybe they're nieces and nephews, frankly, just if you're a part of our church, because we all have kids in our life, don't we? As the family of God, there's a next generation. It's worth us asking the question, have we so accommodated worldliness in our life that we're inadvertently putting our children at risk of becoming spiritual adulterers? And so, just to name a few, just to name one example, and I'm actually going to look at the camera for this. Could it, pretend it was the case that you could get away with some kind of weak cocktail of sporadic church attendance 
occasionally tuning into church online and listening to a podcast every now and again. Frankly, I think that's debatable. Let's just pretend you could get away with that. What are you setting your kids up for? What are you modelling to your kids? Because when we do that, we're not modelling to our children what it looks like to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. We're not modelling what it looks like to belong to a church community. Instead, I think we're leaving them exposed, dangerously vulnerable to the seduction of the world. Again, complacency leads to compromise, not just for ourselves, but all too often, and frankly, often more so for the next generation. Let's move on. Verse 11 and 12. Keep reading. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Uh, you remember that happy couple from the, video, uh, from the story before they met in the park? This is the moment God walks in and finds his wife in bed with another man. Writing's been on the wall for a while, but it doesn't make the moment of betrayal any more difficult, any more painful. Instead, it is a moment of utter devastation which we're going to see repeated time and time again in the weeks to come. That's why later on, God, as part of a broader parable, tells one prophet, Hosea, go and marry a prostitute and love her. That's a picture of what I'm like with my people. They just keep going away from me. Utter betrayal. But who were these lovers? Who were Israelites' lovers? Who, who were the Baals and the Ashtoreths? Well, they were, uh, sometimes it's Baals, other times it's the Baals. And so it seems like the Baals and the Ashtoreths were the male and female uh, gods of the Canaanites. Now, if you're wondering, like, what exactly is the, what is the appeal of worshipping these gods? And most likely it had to do with their connection with agriculture in particular and fertility. And so... The Canaanites had a strong history of working the land. Right? They were farmers and they attributed a lot of their success to their worship of the gods of the land. The Israelites, and particularly this generation, they've mostly only known desert life. And so they have no idea what they're doing. And so in many ways their survival depends on quickly adapting to the new situation and learning as much as they could. But in that context you can see why the temptation to imitate the Canaanites was so strong. But if the Canaanites, the experts in agriculture, they were the farmers, if they said the reason they were successful is because they're worshipping the gods of the land, then who are the Israelites to know better? Maybe, just maybe, their God, Yahweh, maybe he was just a wilderness God. And so let's cover our bases, let's kind of put a foot in both camps, let's you know, worship both. We don't want to forsake, we don't, we don't want to fail. Um, in his commentary on these verses, Barry Webb, who's a, a Bible commentator, he writes this. He says, Israel's idolatry was the way of common sense and necessity. Uh, it was not the way of Yahweh, however. It was the triumph of pragmatics over principle and a failure to trust the God who had proven himself capable of meeting their needs in the wilderness and who would surely have done so again in the land he'd given them if only they had trusted him to do so. 
At the end of the day, the idolatry and spiritual adultery of the Israelites was really just a lack of faith. God had said, trust me. I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will satisfy you. I will give you everything you need. And yet by leaving, kind of by failing to drive out the inhabitants of the land, the Israelites were left with a seemingly plausible alternative to trusting God. Yeah, God, we could trust you, or we could just take matters into our own hands and do what frankly seems to be working for everyone else. All that to say, I do think in some ways the idolatry of the Israelites is not all that different to the idolatry that people like you and I are tempted by today. It all comes down to a lack of faith, a lack of believing that God will actually and is actually worthy of our faith. Do we believe that he will provide for us? That he will protect us? That he will satisfy us and give us everything we need? Or like Israel, do we doubt his word and so serve the idols of sex and money and power like the people around us? Uh, when we do that, we not only are unfaithful to God like so many others, but we also provoke his righteous anger. We're going to see what that does with the cycle in the weeks to come. Now, uh, I'm going to skip the rest of the judges' cycle. That's effectively what is described there because I brought up that diagram for us earlier. Instead, I actually want to finish up now and try and answer the question, how are we supposed to live and be faithful to God in a land full of idols? Because it... It could be that you're sitting there wondering about some of the parallels between what Israel was supposed to do and what we're supposed to do. Right? Because Israel were commanded, drive out the nations from among you. Even if we've already said, we're not allowed to do that, we're not supposed to do that. You might still be wondering, like, so what should we do? Uh, should we maybe try and create holy huddles or Christian enclaves or sort of just communes? that are protected from worldly influences? Well, the answer to that might surprise you in that I think the answer is actually both a yes and a no. Why is it a yes? You might instinctively say, no, 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 we're not supposed to do that. Well, it's a yes in the sense that that is partly what the church is supposed to be. Right? The church is supposed to be a, com is a community of believers, a holy people who renounce sin and seek to live godly lives in all that we do. In some ways, we are supposed to, I think it's okay to use the language, protect the holiness of the church. I think the New Testament teaches that. On the other hand, the answer is also no. Because in, in the New Testament, God's kingdom is not of this world. So we're not supposed to establish you know, a Christian nation. In the language of Peter, the apostle, we're to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of wrongdoing, they may glorify God on the day that he visits us. Right? So that's the challenge, not to drive out the nations, but to remain faithful within and among the nations. Which, interestingly, is actually where Israel kind of ended up on their journey. Because look, at, look at the end of chapter 2. Uh, chapter 2 finishes with these words. It says, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, 
because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. Now, I think that's fascinating. In the sovereignty of God, the presence of the nations is now a test rather than a trap. Or at least not always a trap. Why is that significant? Because you can pass a test. A test is something you can pass or fail. Now, with God's help, failure was not inevitable for his people, the Israelites. And yet, as history tells us, they failed the test woefully. And the reality is, so do you and I, don't we? In our task of being faithful among the nations, living such good lives among the pagans that though they see our good deeds, you know, ridicule us, they pray. All too often we fail that task as well, don't we? We give in to compromise. And so we prove ourselves unworthy of inheriting what was promised. All of which leaves us crying out for a faithful Israelite. An Israelite who would actually pass the test, who would remain faithful to the covenant, who would one day drive out the inhabitants of the land and so in, inherit the land for the people of God. As we're going to see in the coming weeks, while some of the judges give us maybe glimpses of that man, and none of them quite fits the description, they're all broken saviours. Instead, in the end, we actually have to wait for the coming of Christ, the true saviour, the one who lives the life that we should have lived, lived and on the cross dies the death that we should have died. So how should we live, Grace City? Well, uh, heed the warning of the intro. Complacency leads to compromise. Accommodation leads to adultery. Be killing sin in the power of the Spirit, or sin will be killing you. But most importantly, trust in Christ, the one who, if you'll allow me to put it this way, was killed by sin so that those who trust in him need not be. Let's pray together. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story written down. It happened to them, but it was written down as a warning for us. Uh, Lord, we aspire, we desire in the power of your spirit to be obedient people, not given in to half-hearted obedience and therefore disobedience. Would you forgive us? Would you help us to see areas of our life where we're not walking in step with you and to cut them out so that we might be truly faithful people? And yet, Lord, we, we know that despite our best efforts, we will never ultimately do that in such a way as to deserve what you have promised. And so we thank you for Christ, the one who does it perfectly, who's done it faithfully, and has secured our inheritance that he now shares with us. As it help us to fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.